this is a, what I hope will be potentially um, a future book, uh, which I'm tentatively calling The Myth of Secularism. Um, but uh, I'm basically going to share uh, some of my reflections on what is really a work in progress. Um, and looking at a few questions, what is religion? Um, we usually think of it as a relatively limpid concept. Everyone knows what a religion is when they see one. What is deen? That's um, usually translated, it's an Arabic word, usually translated as religion. Um, and I want to look at whether that translation, which has been called into question by a lot of modern scholars, might have something to it. And finally, what is secularism? Uh, and that is an area of considerable um, sort of contention in the contemporary era, but it's also, um, in a sense, an ideology that uh, underpins the way in which we organize the world, particularly in the Western world today. So let me begin, actually, um, by looking at some competing conceptions of the notion of religion. Um, there are, in a sense, um, I mean, there are a number of conceptions of what constitutes religion in academic scholarship today, but I wanted to actually think about, perhaps start by looking at the Oxford Dictionary's definition of religion. Um, so this is the Oxford Dictionary of English. It's not the OED, the 20-volume sort of mammoth piece of scholarship, but uh, it's, it's basically a work of contemporary English usage, you could say. So how is this word used in English today? Um, and they, trans, uh, they sort of define religion as the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal god or gods. This sounds familiar to most people, but if we think about a religion like Buddhism, which we usually refer to as a religion, about 7% of the global population, half a billion people, um, there's no concept of God. Uh, some scholars have described it as an atheistic religion. So already, even with our common sense understanding of these things, things are starting to break down. And so, in a sense, you have these two conceptions of religion within the academy. One is close to the conventional understanding, which we'll have a look at um, in a moment. But you also have um, a notion that religion is actually a modern category. It was invented in the modern period after the 17th century. The wars of religion kind of were constitutive of our understanding of religion today. Um, and you know, some scholars also talk about the fact that secularism as an idea develops with the concept of religion. Um, scholars talk about the fact that, uh, as they would put it, there is no term for religion in pre-modern times. What we refer to as religion doesn't have a pre-modern equivalent. And so, so that's actually a widespread view, and we'll, we'll have a look at it. I uh, you know, shouldn't proceed any further without plugging the work of a colleague um, at Stanford University, um, Roshan Abbasi, he's recently written a, a, a mammoth article, a 100-page article uh, called Islam and the Invention of Religion, where he's basically um, criticizing what he describes as the kind of modern orthodoxy in the study of religion, which argues that religion is a modern invention. Rather, he says, that concept can be found uh, you know, early on in the Islamic uh, tradition. And that's something I'll be looking at in a moment. But as I say, the current academic orthodoxy, and it might be a little overstating of the case. I, I think that there are you know, a significant number of scholars, and I'll be, uh, I quote one of them in the transcript, but I, I'll be sort of quoting him in passing, um, 
they, they hold this kind of uh, traditional concept of religion that we, I, I mentioned earlier. But this is um, the view of Brent Nombri, um, a scholar whose recent book, this is a 2013 book published by Yale University Press called Before Religion, A History of a Modern Concept. He actually, early on in his book, um, defines religion in this way. Religion is anything that sufficiently uh, resembles modern Protestant Christianity. Okay, now stay with him on this. Okay, just let's, let's stick around. So religion is anything that sufficiently resembles um, modern Protestant Christianity. Such a definition might seem as crass, simplistic, ethnocentric, Christianocentric, and even a bit flippant. It is all of these things, but it is also highly accurate in reflecting the use, uses of the term in modern languages. Okay, so this is, as I say, this is a very widespread view that basically what happened was uh, modern Protestant Christianity post-Reformation kind of develops a conception of itself as a religion. That religion is privatized. That religion is, um, in a sense, to stay in the private realm, stay out of a public life. At least that's the dispensation we live with today, for the most part, in a place like the UK. And then Europe exported that concept around the world and said, this is what religion is, get your religions in line with this. So this is kind of the argument that scholars like Brent Nombri are making, that religion has to be privatized. And this is actually something we hear very you know, often in society. We say, well, if it's a religious matter, it's a private matter. It should be privatized. And what he's saying is that conception of religion is actually a distinctly Protestant conception of religion developed after the 17th century um, in, in the wake of the wars of religion. Um, and that, you know, that is actually the, you know, way religion is used in other modern languages as well. Now, that's a point which I will contest in just a moment, um, at least with respect to Arabic and other what scholars call Islamicate languages. Um, scholars sometimes make a distinction between Islamic and Islamicate, um, and Islamicate is basically a reference to uh, what you could say, the secular components of a Muslim society, um, which are in some way imbued with the values of uh, Islam, but are not really a uh, part and parcel of the religion. I'm already using the category of religion there. We'll get back to why, that, why I think that is justified. Now, um, I want to ask us uh, to think beyond Europe. And I, I take my cue from uh, sort of a Bengali historian, uh, my own roots are Bengali as well, um, from the University of Chicago. He wrote a, a very prolific author, but this is an influential book he wrote in the year 2000 uh, called Provincializing Europe, Postcolonial Thought and Historical Difference. So Deepa Chakrabarti is um, a scholar of postcolonial studies, um, and he basically is arguing in this book that when we do history in an academic setting, we are so deeply embedded within a Eurocentric paradigm that it's extremely difficult to escape from it, even though that's something that we should try and do. Um, so the very concepts that we're using, etc., um, are deeply embedded um, within uh, the conceptual universe of uh, Europe and, you know, in a sense, its, it's uh, descendants in a place like the United States. Um, and so in the spirit of provincializing Europe, um, I'm trying to ask ourselves, well, what if we, you know, uh, discard this conception of religion and start to think about religion in terms um, taken from another tradition, the Islamic tradition, for example? Um, not to say that there's a single unitary conception of religion in any given tradition. And so um, 
you know, this, this uh, sorry, uh, on, on the basis of this, I'm, I'm trying to look at, okay, is there an Islamic conception of religion? Okay, and why, is, why should that not be as legitimate a basis for our theoretical ruminations on the category of religion, on society, on the way in which society is organized? Um, uh, why, why should that not be as legitimate a source for those sorts of uh, reflections as uh, the sort of what some scholars describe as the Eurocentric conception of religion, right? Um, and I think, you know, increasingly it's possible to ask those sorts of questions. Uh, you know, I think maybe a generation or two ago, uh, that suggestion would have been sort of dismissed as being, you know, that's not scholarship. Scholarship means you have to respect the canon, right? And that canon is now being brought into question. I think that's a, a healthy development in our studies. So um, in Islam, you have a concept of deen. So the term deen is the Arabic word found in the Quran, found in the hadith literature. And I've got a hadith up there. I'll, I'll read a section of it. It's terribly long. Um, and that term is usually translated as religion in the modern period. Okay. It's not always been translated as religion, but um, you know, in a sense, a language shifts over time. There's something um, to be said about that. But what I've got on the screen is actually a hadith, um, a statement that is attributed to the Prophet, which Muslims generally will consider to be authentic in this particular case. Um, authentically attributed, I've just made a note of where it's found in sort of authoritative Muslim collections. And it's a hadith where it's a statement of the Prophet, or it's actually a narrative of something that happened to the Prophet and his companions, where someone came to the Prophet, completely unfamiliar. It's known as the Gabriel hadith. And so kind of title gives away who's coming. Um, so Gabriel appears in the form of a human and uh, asks the prophet, what is Islam? What is Iman, which means faith? Um, what is Ihsan, which is sometimes translated as spiritual excellence? And then asks a series of other questions. And at the end of that hadith, the prophet asks one of his companions, do you know who asked who, who that questioner was? He had gone at that point. And then, uh, the companion responds, uh, God and his messenger know best. It's a very pious response. And uh, the, the Prophet responds, فَإِنَّهُ جِبْرِيلُ أَتَاكُمْ يُعَلِّمُكُمْ دِينَكُمْ That was Gabriel. He came to teach you your deen. Okay. Your, and so early on in the tradition, you have this term which kind of identifies the entire project, deen. But what's interesting is, um, and perhaps you know, in contradistinction with um, some other traditions, and, and some scholars point out, people like Wilfred Cantwell Smith made this observation um, over 50 years ago, that Islam is almost unique in history as naming itself, okay? The, the scripture, in a sense, names itself. Uh, it has this, uh, it reifies itself, um, to use a bit of a, a, an academic term. Um, and so the Quran itself actually uh, has this, this is uh, Surah 109, verse 6, where it says, لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ deen. It not only attributes deen to uh, itself or, or the Muslim community's practices, but also attributes it to the other. Um, uh, it says that you have your religion, we have ours, okay, or I have mine. And this was addressed, uh, according to tradition, to uh, the unbelievers who were persecuting the Prophet. Okay, saying, like, let us be. You have your religion, we have ours. Um, so the Qur'an, in a sense, um, you know, uses this word, and this is just one instance, but throughout the Qur'an, this term is to be found to 
in my estimation, rather transparently um, refer to beliefs, norms, practices that a given community adheres to, uh, whether it be approved or disapproved by God. And sometimes it refers to the, the deen or the religion of Muslims as deen al-haq, the true religion. So it will sort of make those sorts of claims. Um, but it's, it's interesting that that concept is, in my estimation, very transparently present in uh, early Islamic scripture. And this should disrupt, in my uh, view, the, what Rashain Abbasi calls the orthodoxy that has formed about the notion that religion is actually a modern category. Okay. Um, now, I'm going to change gears now and think about secularism for a moment. Okay. Um, what is secularism? Another of these concepts, as I say, um, you know, we all think we know what it is, but when we start to sort of explore what, what it means, it's difficult to pin down. Um, and so, you know, uh, philosophers sometimes call ideas like this uh, essentially contested concepts, um, concepts where people are, you know, arguing about the very essence of it, the concept itself, you know, um, democracy. You could say Britishness, like what is, what is Britishness? And so secularism is often uh, viewed as the separation of church and state. That's one very popular definition, uh, something I'll come back to towards the end of the lecture. And Charles Taylor in this really, um, it's an award-winning book, um, A Secular Age, and it's a huge book. I think it's 900 pages. It took a long time to finish reading that. But uh, Charles Taylor has suggested that secularism should better be understood as managing pluralism, a, a kind of neutrality between different competing uh, religious claims, for example, on the part of the state. So the state should be a neutral umpire between different um, sort of perspectives. But as I say, um, secularism is a you know, contentious topic. How do we define secularism? Um, Talal Asad, the chap whose book is on the left, um, an influ influential anthropologist of the secular. So he's, a, he's an anthropologist who's, instead of looking at um, sort of traditional societies, he said, well, what does an anthropology of secular societies look like? And he says secularity is uh, you know, a distinct product of European history, and he's one of these people who describes religion and secularism as Siamese twins, for example. Um, Charles Taylor, uh, I've already mentioned, uh, talks about sort of neutrality, and he also highlights that secularism is about sort of the prevention of the persecution of minorities, for example, the recognition of pluralism as acceptable, managing pluralism. Um, and then you have, uh, I think this is a relatively conventional view, um, but one which has been brought into question increasingly. Uh, Aziz Al-Azma, um, a, a scholar, I think he's in, in Budapest at the moment, but um, uh, he describes secularism as kind of a natural product of history. So history kind of tended towards secularism. And he's a very sophisticated scholar, but it strikes me as a, a tad teleological. It, you know, it's, it's um, kind of history arrived at its conclusion with Europe for some reason, according to that view. Um, and I, you know, I, I would sort of bring, uh, question that kind of a reading. But uh, what about secularism beyond Europe as well? So I'm sort of going a little bit, um, uh, perhaps a bit backwards, um, sort of, in a sense, I've already mentioned Deepesh Chakrabarti's Provincializing Europe. Um, and so what I'm suggesting here is that that account of secularism as sort of emerging and kind of reflecting natural historical development whereby you know, um, all societies, as they mature, as they advance, as they progress, 
they will secularize. This is a very widespread assumption within the sociolog sociology of religion as well. Um, uh, and so, you know, in a sense, in, in accord with that sort of an understanding, um, I want to sort of go back slightly and, and mention Bruce Lincoln as another person who holds, uh, upholds a conception of religion which is relatively um, conventional in that way. And he describes religion as com consisting of uh, four components, uh, the most important of which I want to highlight is a transcendent discourse. Um, but it also is... Uh, so, and, and I want to highlight Bruce Lincoln's definition for two reasons. One is, um, let's think about religion, but let's think about you know, how this might even apply to the concept of secularism as well. So Bruce Lincoln, uh, a scholar at the University of Chicago as well, um, wrote in this book, um, made an attempt to define religion. And he's a very sophisticated scholar, uh, one of the finest scholars of religion of his generation, um, but someone who, in my view, adheres to the conventional view that, in a sense, you can attempt to come, across with, uh, come up with a universal category of religion that excludes secularism as well. So he, he defines religion fairly extensively, I've, I've summarized it here, as a transcendent discourse a practice, a community, and an institution, right? So, uh, you know, if we think about Christianity, transcendent discourse, the discourse of the Bible. A practice, you know, there'll be various rituals attached to it, a community, the Christian communion, as it were, and an institution, the church. Um, but in my estimation, if you, depending on how you define transcendent, that can define any community. Okay, so if we think about the British, uh, Britishness is a discourse, right? Um, it is also a practice that is regulated through laws uh, laid out through statute or in the form of the British Constitution, um, whatever that is. Right? Um, a community, you know, I, I literally, I happen to have my passport with me today because I'm flying out tomorrow, but we actually have sort of like these documents with which we can identify ourselves. Um, and an institution. Um, the institution, you could say, uh, is uh, the British state, but you know, I think Britain uh, is an institution in a sense. So, I mean, one of the things that I should perhaps highlight here is these are all ideas. Right? There's nothing natural in the world which identifies someone as being from some country. These are ideas that we generate and we develop um, into institutions. The idea of Gresham College is basically a collectivity of people um, who have continued certain practices over time, right? And in that way, um, what I'm suggesting here is that what is, uh, you know, what is so different about secularism as a practice compared to a religion? Okay. The term transcendent is what uh, Bruce Lincoln leans on heavily, in my estimation, in order to justify the distinction between religion and secularism. So transcendence, um, he uses, in my estimation, and he doesn't use the term God, probably bearing in mind uh, a tradition like Buddhism, right? Um, or other potentially non-theistic practices. I, I suspect certain forms of um, other religions, uh, other than Buddhism, and I'm not an expert on Hinduism, uh, would be considered to be uh, transcendent discourses. Uh, Buddhism, in a sense, believes uh, in spiritual practices that elevate people to a realm that cannot be accessed by the normal human beings and so on. So, in a sense, um, transcendence is doing a lot of work here. 
But in, to my mind, the values that underlie um, you know, any of these uh, religious systems are transcendent on some level. Okay? And I'm happy to sort of take questions uh, later, you know, qu um, querying my, my conception of this. But what is liberty? What is um, sort of uh, liberalism as an idea? What is the individual or individualism as an idea? These are transcendent ideas in a sense. They are concepts and conceptions that we elevate to levels of unimpeachability uh, in order to underpin uh, our legal frameworks, in order to uh, recognize what is an acceptable social practice uh, in our communities. What is equality, right? Uh, and what I want to suggest is that uh, any normative system has to develop, uh, depend on these norms, which are transcendent ideas on some level. Uh, I haven't got the book uh, in the slides, but um, I'm reminded of William T. Kavanaugh has a wonderful book called The Myth of Religious Violence, um, where he basically um, uh, argues that uh, transcendence is something which is a kind of convenient way, it's a sleight of hand to al allow for the creation of religion as a category. Okay. So he says that someone who works on Wall Street and has a commitment to capitalism, in a sense, uh, engages in a, uh, a kind of deifying of uh, the market and may spend hours and hours in rituals of devotion <laughs> to the market. Um, I suppose, uh, to, to give a sort of uh, a locally relevant example, would be the city of London, right? And, and so I personally think that there's something to that. And I think that the attempt to distinguish between theistic traditions or even something like Buddhism and an idea like secularism uh, hinges on this conception of transcendence, which I think is highly problematic. I, I should um, sort of conclude this slide. I, I didn't mean to take quite so much time on it, but... Um, I, I'm going to plug my uh, colleague Roshan Abbasi's work again as being a, uh, an extraordinary history. Uh, his PhD, 600-page uh, PhD, is um, a remarkable history of the concept of the secular, not secularism, but the secular, meaning the, uh, he, he talks about the distinction between a religious realm and a secular realm uh, as being present within the Islamic tradition from early on and theorized by scholars through history. Um, it's unfortunately unpublished, uh, so if you want to read it, you'll have to fly to Cambridge, Massachusetts and check in at the library of Harvard University. But um, hopefully it's uh, due for publication in 2023 with Princeton University Press. So if you're interested, that will be a, a, a book to look for. Okay, so I've already sort of suggested this. Inverting the gaze, secularism as a religion. And uh, I'm, I'm taking inverting the gaze as a kind of a decolonial phrase, so to speak. Um, you know, in my estimation, uh, the Islamic view of religion uh, resembles uh, Emile Durkheim's uh, sort of famous definition of religion early on in his uh, enormous book, um, uh, Les Formes Alimentaires de la Vie Religieuse, um, the elementary forms of the religious life. So this is um, 1912 work. He passes away five years later. It's kind of his, you know, swan song. Um, Sorry, I hope that's not me. Um, so, uh, you know, this is his great work towards the end of his life. And he defines religion, interestingly enough, without reference to God. He says, 
Uh, a religion is a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things. That is to say, things set apart and forbidden. So that's his definition of sacred. And in all societies, we set things apart and forbid people from transgressing them, in a sense. Um, and practices which unite into a, a, one single moral community called the church, all those who adhere to them. Okay. So he's used the term church. You know, I think um, you know, uh, that's a little sort of... Um, uh, you know, I, I would query the use of that term. But um, I think to a certain extent, uh, you know, these sorts of conceptions of various modern ideologies as religions is, is not terribly new. Um, another example, so this is from 1912, obviously, Emile Durkheim, um, and he, in a sense, uh, argues towards the end of his book that you know, all societies need religions. If we were to get rid of religion, we'd have to invent a new one. Um, uh, scarcely a decade later, um, uh, Carlton Hayes, a scholar at, uh, historian at uh, Columbia University, um, in his, uh, writes a, an essay in a collected uh, volume of essays, uh, Nationalism as a Religion. It's out of copyright, so you can Google it and read it online. And uh, really fascinating. I mean, he expands it later on. Uh, I think he published uh, the book form in 1961, so 30, 35 years later. But um, the book is called Nationalism, a Religion. And this is Nationalism as a Religion. But those sorts of reflections on the way in which various modern ideologies, in a sense, um, take the place of religions is something which is quite widespread. Um, and so I asked this question, could various modern ideologies be viewed as religions? And here's you know, one potential way of looking at this. Depending on how one defines religion, and I've suggested a few definitions, we could view secularism as a broad church religion, while various secular ideologies, such as liberalism, nationalism, may be seen as denominations or sects. Right? Um, I, I suppose denominations is a less loaded term, but perhaps uh, Nazism and fascism should be considered sects. Okay, um, and so in a sense, these are all post-enlightenment ideologies that predicate themselves um, on, you know, a world-focused, what Charles Taylor calls, you know, they look through an imminent frame. They look at the world beyond, not as transcendent, as connected somehow to a transcendent world, but only as imminent, only as, um, you know, interacting with the here and now um, and, and worldly time, as it were. And so, um, you know, this is, I think, a, a remarkable transition in, uh, in the history of humanity, in a sense, this kind of uh, shift um, beyond uh, transcendence. But I also think that this is simply another manifestation of human religion. Um, so these religions are ones which uh, the secular worldly realm, uh, sorry, uh, ones in which the secular worldly realm has been converted into an all-encompassing system that has re replaced religious traditions. And what do I mean by that? I'm just thinking about a, an idea like liberalism uh, as something that imbues um, all of our institutions, or at least it should in a sense. So, you know, we see ourselves as a liberal society. The values of liberalism and individuality, um, equality, um, all of these sorts of notions, uh, in a sense, um, what uh, Charles Tra Taylor, uh, the Canadian historian um, of secularism, calls the French um, revolutionary trinity, liberté, égalité, fraternité, liberty, equality, and um, fraternity. And those, you know, those values, in many respects, are things that imbue our institutions, 
they imbue our laws, you know, um, they are the basis on which we can actually adjudicate disputes among each, uh, one another. Um, and in my estimation, we engage in philosophical uh, inquiry which can be described as theological with respect to those sorts of traditions. Um, so if <laughs> what I'm suggesting is a legitimate reading, um, then we live in a deeply religious age. Uh, and uh, it sort of subverts um, uh, our self-image uh, as a secular society. So, um, in a sense, I mean, uh, this book is slightly unrelated to the slide, but, um, you know, uh, I'm highlighting the, the limitations of the prevailing understanding of secularism in light of Islam, that a number of modern scholars note that um, Islam, even as a practice today, even as a tradition today, not, not only the pre-modern world, um, bucks the Western trend of secularization in, in a form of marginalizing religion from the political sphere. Now, most of the time people have rather sort of like unpleasant conceptions of this, partly because of the way in which it has been mediatized. But even beyond the more shocking manifestations that people are used to uh, and form you know, part of a narrative which is very problematic and skews our understanding of what's actually happening in the world, in my estimation. There are you know, interesting things to be said about the fact that um, religiosity uh, in the Muslim world often manifests also in the political sphere. And there isn't really a very widespread conception in parts of the world which have not been deeply touched by secular paradigms that that is a bad thing, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, that's something that we can explore in perhaps uh, the Q&A. But uh, it's just something to recognize that the sort of the common understanding that secularism is the natural way for humanity and it will gradually sort of secularize the whole world, still held by sort of um, respected sociologists of religion today, um, I think really needs to be brought into question um, and not in a historical fashion, but in a, in a fashion that's reflective and, and thinks about the, the sort of plurality of uh, perspectives that exist in the world. These perspectives remain discursively marginal. So in the broader discourse on, uh, you know, whether it's in, at an academic level, where there is, I think, greater latitude in, in this sort of um, discourse, or certainly in the popular level, they are uh, discursively marginal due to sort of a, the dominance of certain, uh, in my estimation, narrow views of what, um, uh, how society should be organized, what we can think, in a sense. Um, so let me give one other example of what we can think of as uh, a nation, uh, you know, as, uh, as a religion. So I'm taking this again from Carlton Hayes. This is his 1961 book, or no, it says 1960 on that. So his 1960 book, and um, I'm just riffing off of it. This isn't necessarily what he's saying, um, but I'm just saying, why don't we think about modern nation states as kind of these religious entities of sorts? Um, they have sacred histories. All nation states have founding myths. Why are we uh, sort of um, Britain rather than England or Scotland? Or, you know, I guess Scotland might happen. But, uh, <laughs> but why are, you know, what is, who is, what, what makes France, France? Um, 
and younger nations have to kind of invent mythologies about themselves. They create museums, they sort of uh, write histories that are, to a certain extent, an act of creation, not an act of sort of discursive discovery. You could say it's a form of discovery. Creation is, can also be a form of discovery. And so we have founding myths. We have sacred scriptures, in my estimation. Uh, and, and I had a, a sort of Moshe Halbertal's book earlier, People of the Book. Um, constitutions, I mean, it's a bit difficult to say this in the UK, of course. But, <laughs> but uh, in, in some respects, you know, statutory law um, can be seen as uh, having elements of this. These are texts which cannot be ignored. They are true by definition, right? That's how a scripture works, right? Um, the Constitution of the United States is a good example because to a certain extent it's, it's starting to be a bit archaic, right? It's a couple of hundred years old at this point, or more than that. And it's creating all sorts of complications with respect to, for example, the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms and things like that, written in a very different time. Yet, it's not something that can just be discarded. It's a sacred text in practice. Right? And you have a clerical class that adjudicates these sacred texts, various rankings of clerics. The Supreme Court justices are the, the greatest theologians, the, the sort of uh, the doctors of the church. But um, you do have a massive theological discourse. Uh, I'm describing it somewhat facetiously as a theological discourse. But um, you know, that's what legal scholars are there for, to mull over these complicated questions uh, as they re relate to practice. The philosophers are there to explore the you know, philosophical underpinnings. Uh, and sometimes those two realms will overlap as well. Um, you have, uh, as I said, sort of a, a clerical class. You have unequal um, in-groups and out-groups. So, you know, religions will have members of that confession and people who are outside of that confession. But we have citizens and foreigners, for example. In fact, we're so committed to our in-groups and out-groups that we create documents to prove that we're a member of one and not a member of another. And people die over these things, of course, right? I mean, it's, it's a tragedy that we're living through in the course of the refugee crisis. Um, and the state um, you know, is, in a sense, this inviolable um, sort of entity. Uh, the state, in a sense, becomes quite sacred. Um, and we can talk about that. But in a sense, um, the way in which sometimes security is used to uh, run roughshod over liberty is an illustration of you know, some of these quasi-theological debates. Um, and yeah, so I hope that this sort of um, reading of a kind of alternative history of the secular, so to speak, based on an Islamic um, sort of set of presuppositions uh, is, is an interesting sort of interesting one that people may consider taking up. That's my friend Roshayna Bursi, uh, the scholar at Stanford. And here is a book by Noah Feldman, um, uh, who's at Harvard. But um, in a sense, what we have with secularism is the kind of, in my estimation, the marginalization of traditional religions and replacement with potentially an alternative religion. Um, Roshan Abbasi argues in his uh, thesis at one point that uh, Islam's worldliness, actually, no, this is in a separate article, but uh, Islam's worldliness may have prevented the formation of secularism within Islamic civilization in the form that we have within uh, Western civilization. In a sense, this is his argument, that there was a kind of harmony, a natural harmony between the, the secular and the religious within Islam, 
um, that allowed for that interplay not to create great tension in the way that he suggests was the case in Europe. And Noah Feldman also sort of points out in the political realm, which is, you know, in a sense, the raison d'etre of secularism is the separation of the religion, religious and the political. In the political realm, historically, um, sort of, sorry, historically, the political realm was subordinate to a rule of law system. Yes, it was based on the Sharia, um, but it was a rule of law system that was seen as just and operated in ways that conformed to society's values, rather than what is very often assumed that you know, pre-modern religious um, polities were in some way, on the basis of religion, despotic. Um, the divine right of kings doesn't uh, really exist in the Islamic tradition, in my reading. Part of the problem, uh, part of the reason I wrote my uh, latest book about the Arab revolutions of 2011 is that there's an attempt to revive or, in, in a sense, manufacture kind of divine right of kings or, in, in the case of the Middle East, divine right of dictators. Um, so, so that is a problem. But, um, yeah, I, this, this is kind of my last slide and then I, I'm just going to read a brief sort of um, the conclusion to, to the written version of the paper. Um, which I say is a work in progress. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff here which I don't talk about in that paper. But, and there's stuff in that paper which I don't talk about here. But, you know, in a sense, the implication of what I've said for the last 40 minutes is that it, it creates a kind of contradiction in secularism self-image, right? How can secularism be a neutral umpire between religions if it itself is a religion, right? Um, I think this question needs... Uh, indicates the need for in it, reassessing our uh, conceptions of various concepts. Um, and I hope that, you know, uh, in a sense that I've contributed to something useful in that regard. Um, I'm just going to read out, and I hope this is not too much of, I don't drone too much, but I just wanted to read out um, a brief uh, section, the conclusion of my article. Um, of course, secularism rejects the notion that it is analogous to the religions of old. It sees itself as uniquely, a uniquely rational enterprise that has transcended the superstition of pre-modern religions. Those religions now belonged in the, public, in the private sphere of the modern secular order. This was essential to maintaining the peace and preventing uh, the world from being riven by superstitious wars over otherworldly salvation, at least in secularism's self-conception. But in fact, secularism was simply, even ingenuously, reenacting the established pattern of a new universal religious project. It had simply come to recognize its own salvific qualities and thus, it's, uh, thus it, was the only re it was only reasonable that it supersede the primitive paradigm of religion in the public sphere. Secularism was the new dispensation brought for the salvation of humanity, and it was for humanity's own good that it be accepted in one ideological form or another. Yet unlike a religion like Islam, whose scriptures offered the ostensibly unbeatable claim that God had sent it, uh, Islam as the final revelation through the final prophet to end all prophets, that's the Muslim belief that uh, the prophet Muhammad was the final prophet, Unlike that, secularism could make the claim that it had in fact superseded the category of religion itself. This was in many ways a masterstroke of self-legitimation, for it cleared away all the traditional competitors for authority in the public sphere. By masking itself as transcending religion, secularism has arguably found uh, a means of legitimizing itself 
that has proven remarkably effective. It has called for religion to be largely removed from, the public, from public life, except in a symbolic or vestigial form. In doing so, it has rendered the public sphere a realm over which it exercises a monopoly of uh, legitimate violence. Yet, I have tried to suggest, as I've tried to suggest over the course of this presentation, there is a deep contradiction at the heart of secularism as it stands today, namely that it upholds the principle of separating religion and state, or in more recent articulations, uh, upholds the state's neutrality or equidistance uh, between all religions. But if secularism is indeed itself a religion, then the claims that the secular state is separate from religion breaks down. And I ask the question, how can the secular state be neutral between religions if it is governed by the rules of one particular religion, namely secularism? I don't have the answer to these questions, versions of which have been posed by certain Christian scholars from, for some time now. But I do think posing such questions from an Islamic perspective is important in helping us recognize the need for our society to acknowledge that the, conversations in, uh, that the conversation in these areas needs to be broadened to include a wider range of viewpoints that better reflect the people who make up our increasingly diverse societies. The conversations uh, these kinds of reflections might open up can be enriching and mind-broadening in many ways, um, and I hope will foster greater mutual respect and understanding. If what I say contributes to such an outcome, I will consider the job of this, pre, uh, this brief presentation to be done. Thank you. If secularism is a religion, what should it mean for the separation of religion and the state, right. in your view? Oh my. Um, <laughs> I, I hope my conclusion made clear. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think we need to have conversations about this um, because it does make things a lot more complicated, in a sense. And I, I think that, you know, that claim that I have presented, and I've not presented it as, you know, the truth, but I'm presenting it as a claim that secularism is a religion, opens up opportunities for conversations and discussions rather than, you know, giving us any answers, to be honest. Um, and I think that, you know, that's the opportunity that we should embrace at this point in time. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I think it will make for a very interesting sort of and mutually respectful conversation. Thank you for a fascinating lecture. Thank you. I have a number of questions, but I'm glad I'll keep it to one. Thank you. Um, where in secularism or religion does morality come in? You've, I think it's been subtext there, actually. Right, right. But is there a universal morality right. that can be obeyed? Right. That's a, an excellent question. I mean, yes, it's absolutely, it's been sort of implied throughout, and I, I've used the term norms throughout. So, um, and in a sense, uh, the sort of, the enterprise of ethics and, and moral philosophy, and philosophy more generally over the last century or two, has been trying to address what happens to morality when we lose um, sort of the traditional uh, sources of that morality, so Christianity or Judaism or any given religious tradition. Um, what I'm suggesting is that actually, and I'm not, you know, it's not a suggestion, it's, it's very well um, recognized, you know, political philosophy is, an, uh, is a species of uh, ethics. It's a species of moral philosophy. When people like John Rawls, the great sort of liberal philosopher um, from Harvard, wrote a theory of justice, he was basically trying to ask 
you know, what is ethical for society? How should societies be organized in a way that's ethical? So I think secularism has its own traditions of morality, um, and liberalism is one such tradition of morality. Um, religious traditions have their um, sort of uh, discourses on morality as well. So uh, I, I think that, um, in my estimation, uh, and I haven't you know, figured out a definition for religion in, from an Islamic conception, but what I take to be, the, uh, broadly speaking, the understanding of religion is a community that... Um, religion is basically a set of norms that govern a community. Norms mean that there's morals involved, right? Um, how should we behave towards one another? How should we... Um, so what sorts of laws... Laws are intimately tied with our ethics as well. Um, but what should, you know, what kinds of laws should govern our uh, transactions and interactions with each other? Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think religions um, were that source historically, and secularism in its various dispensations, uh, liberalism, and, and forms that we might not like so much, you know, uh, communism and, and so on, um, will have their moralities as well, yeah. And I think we need to recognize, of course, that there's, there's a diverse array of moralities out there, the question of universalism is a difficult one. Um, yes, I mean, uh, one classical and perhaps dominant Islamic perspective was that um, uh, a virtually relativist one, which was to say that, you know, you cannot really know what is right or wrong without the guidance of God. Um, I think that that's somewhat problematic personally because then how do you know how to accept what God gives you, is that right or wrong, right? So, but, you know, those, those are interminable debates. Anyway, so I hope that answers the question somewhat. Would you say that the periods of political Islam revival, the 1970s to and the 2010s, actually represent a wide rejection of secularism within the Islamic world, or do times of perceived Islamic revival merely represent Islamic influence coming from the background to the forefront of society? It's a very thoughtful question, actually. Um, so, the sort of what's referred to as political Islam, um, uh, a term which I, I think reflects, and, and scholars are increasingly um, noting this, that even that label reflects a kind of uh, Eurocentric paradigm because. Uh, you have to give a special label to a religion that has a political component, right? But, um, uh, you know, I, I think that it reflects not necessarily... I mean, what is secularism? Um, a lot of the groups that are labelled as political Islamists are, you know, pro-democracy. They want to um, uphold, uh, you know, a certain regime of human rights, which in many cases we would recognise. In some cases, you know, there would be... Uh, tensions with dominant uh, liberal traditions, for example, perhaps on uh, questions of gay rights or, you know, uh, things of that nature. Um, I, I think that there are... Uh, it's too simple to say it's a rejection of secularism. Secularism is an entire tradition. There are lots of things that, uh, you know, secularism, in my view, as a religious tradition, has to offer. And not all of those things are problematic. In fact, many of those things are quite positive, in my estimation. Um, and so those elements um, don't need to be rejected by um, uh, political Islam, and I don't think are rejected by political Islam. The, um, 
the Muslim Brotherhood, an organization that I've spent some time studying, um, which is probably the largest and most influential you know, organization under the label of political Islam, um, is an organization that is very pro-democracy, that is extremely popular and anti-dictatorship in the Middle East. Um, and that's why they are hated by the secular autocrats. And the secular autocrats sell themselves as secular to the West. They're not actually any more secular or you know, less religious than the Muslim Brotherhood. That's just a good marketing tool to get sort of the West on your side. So, you know, I think um, in the region, um, there, there are interests, but there's not much to do with the secular religion divide in my estimation. One thing that really came to mind when uh, thinking about your ultimate conclusion, secularism as a religion, is why is the word secularism used? And it immediately made me think of France right. and the concept of laicite. Right. And to my mind, and yes. I'd like your observations on this, it's a device, the word secularism. It's a mm. device basically used to make a particular belief system right. seem more important, neutral, and um, acceptable mm. in a society. And that, in a sense, what happens in France, because right. you have a particular belief system. Right. It's not called a, a, a religion. It's, called, it's put forward mm. under the concept of laicite, right. and it privileges certain historic practices. Right. And so what I'm really interested in is, is uh, what you think about the use of the word secularism. Why is it used? Hmm. That's, a, again, a very thoughtful question. Thank you very much. And um, France is a very unusual sort of um, case of, uh, I mean, compared to sort of the liberal polities that um, we might be used to in the Anglophone world. Um, I lived in the United States for more than five years and, you know, religion is quite widespread in society there and it's invoked in you know, uh, Congress and all of those sorts of things. And um, France is a very kind of, uh, laicite is a very aggressive kind of anti-religion uh, in a sense. And some so sociologists of religion actually call it a religion. I mean, not in the sense that I'm talking about. Um, for some reason, this is something I feel a bit irritated by, by the way. Uh, some sociolog sociologists of religion will label as religious uh, secular ideologies which are tend to the extreme. So they'll say Nazism, fascism, and perhaps laicite can be considered polit uh, sort of political religions or something like this. And I'm like, well, everything's a religion. Anyway, so um, I think at the end of the day, we use labels to, you know, these develop very often organically in the course of debates. The word secularism emerges from, um, from a uh, sort of important English thinker, George Holyoke, who wanted to coin a phrase that would not um, suggest atheism uh, and immorality. Um, I believe he's the one who sort of coined the, the phrase sort of secularism, um, but then it kind of takes a life of its own. And uh, as a philosophical system, it um, sort of uh, develops into uh, you know, a very important and central idea. I think those things happen through historical accident. And then we become wedded to a particular version of that. So I'm not sure uh, that there's a, a particular sort of effort to um, engineer something uh, by using a particular word. I think whatever word has ended up representing what we think is appropriate, um, an appropriate ideology or appropriate philosophy and appropriate religion, we will then um, argue is you know, the best thing since sliced bread, right? And therefore, 
we must uphold it. And if you're not upholding it, we need to somehow marginalize you and show society that this is not acceptable. All societies do that with their core concepts, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I'm not sure it's particularly unusual to secular societies. If, yeah, I hope that answers the question somewhat. I can remember when I did my first degrees a long, long time ago, but um, there's a theologian, R.C. Zane, who wanted to encompass a whole variety of, of different theistic and non-theistic views, right. including dialectical materialism. Right. So the thinking of Marx and Engels right. is materialist in, in the sense of the material world is all that counts. Yeah. Man is the highest evolution of matter. But he wanted to call it a religion. Right. Right. Uh, would you want to include that sure. yourself <laughs> so th in, this, is, yeah. in this broad conception of what religion might be, yes. theistic or non-theistic? Yeah. So I, I mean, as you can see, I'm quite sort of liberal with the label religion, uh, no pun intended. Um, and uh, but what's interesting about dialectical materialism uh, is that even someone like Bruce Lincoln, who holds this sort of notion of religion as transcendent, in a footnote in that book, argues that, well, you know, it might be reasonable to say dialectical materialism, given their certainties in this sort of like, in, in the ideas that they've generated, um, can be considered a religion. Um, but again, for me, uh, you know, this is one of the things that irritates me slightly, which is that, well, why make a special case of bad things as religion, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, that's my, so I, I think there's a kind of prejudice, in, in my estimation, in the way in which um, certain things are called religion because there's something wrong with them. They've come into the political realm. That's a Protestant prejudice, uh, so to speak, that, that is post-17th century, um, for what it's worth. <laughs> who uh, disagree with most of it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, Great. I, don't, I don't really think that secularism can be defined as a religion right. because it doesn't have the normal uh, characteristics of a religion. It doesn't have a catechism or a membership category or rituals. It's not a religion. It's a principle. Hmm. Now, I don't have a religion, right. but I'm a secularist. But if I had a religion, I'd also be a secularist right. because I do believe right. as a principle in the separation or the neutrality of the right. state and right. its institutions. So I don't think that religion should have a special role in the functioning of the state. That's all that secularism is. Right. So the examples you give uh, are, are really, secularism grew out of conflicts within religion, right. not between religions. Whereas, whereas the, the Islamic societies you, you, you describe ha, ha, have always been almost uh, wholly Muslim. Not always, not always, not always, but uh, mostly have. Mm -hmm. and, and secularism, even before uh, the Edict of Nantes and so on, had a history. There were many empires which were, broadly speaking, secular. They left people to their own devices. They did not interfere or force conversions, etc., etc. So I'm not saying they're secular, but they were in some ways secular. And so secularism has a long history, right. which... which uh, you, you seem to be suggesting somehow it's a completely modern uh, uh, idea. It's not. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that you've mentioned. I'm just trying yeah, to keep yeah, up yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. which, with which points that I. I, I wonder if you, if you'd like to sort of like um, summarize the question in in one or two components. Well, y your definition of secularism as a religion is not substantiated because it does not have the characteristics of a religion. Sure. So it doesn't have places of worship. So if, it does if, not have uh, 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 if it's all right, an, uh, I'll, I'll catechism, 
you know, rituals and so on. Sure, sure. So how do we define anything, right? What, what's the you know, what, on what basis do we define something as religion, something as secularism, right? Uh, basically, the conclusions we'll arrive at will depend on those decisions that are made early on in that sort of thought process. So early on, I kind of set out, a, set out my stall on how I conceived of religion. And religions are basically, you know, broadly speaking, about uh, norms that allow for the cohesive existence of a society. If I define religion on that basis, then certainly I can call secularism a religion. You're defining religion on the basis of you know, certain other presuppositions. So we can then go and question you know, the presuppositions themselves. Is it reasonable to say that um, you know, uh, if something has a catechism, it is a religion? If something has such and such a component, it is a religion? And I think there are scholars who have argued in that way, as I've mentioned with Bruce Lincoln. Um, but I, I would suggest that um, it's perfectly reasonable to develop this kind of a conception of religion. Um, and I think the resistance to that um, is something that we're better you know, bringing into question because it, it, it shows us a, a kind of uh, attachment to ideas which are somewhat arbitrary and historically sort of like have come about at a certain point in time for reasons that maybe need to be brought into question. So, yeah, I mean, that would be my sort of uh, uh, broad response to that. We could take specific questions, because you, you raised a lot of, um, you know, uh, there were a number of aspects to what you mentioned. Um, and I can't recall all of them. I didn't have the presence of mind to make notes at the time. And I'm happy to discuss this with you afterwards. But really, it, it hinges on how have you defined the category of religion. The way in which you've defined religion Obviously, secularism doesn't count as a religion because you've defined it in a way that precludes the possibility of including secularism as a religion. But I've brought into question in the course of my uh, talk, and this is a, you're not the only person who does it. Pl uh, you know, plenty of scholars have done that. Uh, I've brought into question you know, that approach to the definition of religion. Um, and I think that there are cogent reasons to bring, bring that approach into question. But you know, this will be, hopefully, a, a conversation we can take on uh, after the session. I would just like to thank Dr. Thank you so much. for a really fascinating, stimulating interview. Thank you all. Thank you, everyone.